Hello, welcome to another episode of the PE Hub podcast. My name is Sam Sutton. And I'm Chris Witkowski. And it is summer here in New York City. It's been a few weeks since we did an episode, so we thought it was time to get back to it, especially since all of you are going to be commuting out to the Hamptons as you listen to this. Yeah, so sorry for the delay. It's like uh, time just gets away from you. Exactly. You realize how long it had been since the last one. People were on vacation, long weekends, people were out of the office. It's been a lot. So um, before we get to today's podcast, where we're going to be talking about a very interesting secondaries deal that Chris covered not too long ago, as well as the Calipers Direct Investment Model. I want to remind you of a couple of events that we have coming up. The first is in Chicago at the Interno- Intercontinental Hotel. That's on uh, June 26th and 27th. And that's uh, Tony James is going to be headlining that event. Yeah, so we, really, just, we just heard. Really, really excited about that. That's going to be cool. And then the second is uh, later this summer in July, uh, Emerging Manager Connect East at the Grand Hyatt here in New York City. Um, so if you are an emerging manager or interested in investing with emerging managers, definitely go to partnerconnectevents.com and check that out. And that uh, <clears throat> that's one of my favorite conferences. And that activity, just, just as a quick aside, that emerging manager activity seems to be as, uh, as hot as it was last year. There's so many f- spin-outs and first-time firms that I'm hearing about, including executives, coming out of bigger shops and, and just sort of even starting on a deal-by-deal basis. Um, it just seems like that side of the market is as active as it's been. Well, that actually transitions really nicely into this story about uh, Argonne. Is it Argonne? Argonne. Argonne, okay, uh, which is a firm that was doing kind of deal-by-deal f- or kind of investing on a deal-by-deal vas- basis. They didn't have a standard or a regular fund and are now starting to move into that model. But before they did that, they did a, a really interesting secondary transaction. So walk us through what you, uh, what you covered there. Yeah, and, and so just, just to kick it off with, with a 30,000-foot view, um, this, is, this is all about a second private equity secondary market that um, is as active as it's ever been. And um, because so much money is being raised by secondary firms, um, those who are looking to deploy that money are, are getting creative with how they deploy it. And so what we're seeing in the secondary market is, is, uh, is a whole lot of GP-led transactions, restructurings, tender offers, things like that, including at the upper levels of the market with big headline GPs. This year uh, became public that NEA, New Enterprise Associates, is, is doing something, selling something like a billion dollars worth of stakes in startups mm-hmm. in a, um, you know, a GP liquidity process. Um, I believe the advisor on that is Lazard. And, um, <clears throat> of course, the big model that everybody looks to is Warburg last year selling a strip of its uh, Asian mm-hmm. portfolio companies. So uh, everybody I talk to, and we're going to be looking more in depth on this issue this week because we have a secondaries issue coming up. Everybody I talk to says that they expect um, even more of these headline-grabbing GP-led restructurings. And so in this environment, with all this money out there uh, with, with – uh, GPs looking for deals, um, we have a, what I like to call a fund restructuring of a fundless sponsor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's even possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, Argonne is a fundless sponsor. They, they uh, you know, they basically go out and um, bring in a group of investors for each deal they do. And so they have a, you know, they have a portfolio of, of companies that they've, they've invested in. Um, and so what happened here was that they took six portfolio companies and rolled them up into one fund, which they're calling Argonne Capital Partners One, mm-hmm. um, 
as part of that transaction, they gave original investors, the original investors in this com- in these companies were basically family offices and high net worths. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really long-term type investors. They gave those original investors the opportunity to either completely cash out mm-hmm. or partially cash out but roll their interests, you mm-hmm. know, into this fund, stay with the companies as they, you know. Continue to mature. Continue to mature, sort of ride the growth up. Um, so, real quick before you get on yeah. to the next point here, I know that I've co- talked to some guys who do deals on a deal-by-deal basis and don't have a, you know, traditional private equity fund. And typically, the way it's described to me is that it's kind of a completely different set of investors for each one of their deals. Not completely different, but, you know, it's not like a fund where the same LPs are in each deal. It's a different group of LPs for for, for each deal here. So did that complicate the process in your in your reporting? And I, th- I think that model, I, I think that model changes. I think it depends on the independent mm. sponsor. Some independent sponsors actually have actually have a dedicated group of investors that they go to every single time. Mm-hmm. So th- in but this that said, they, not every single investor is going to go say right. yes to each deal. Right. So, so we'll that's that. what I mean, is that e- the pool of investors for each deal is comprised differently. It's not the same, like, uh, breakdown as you would with, like, a traditional fund. Yeah, it wouldn't be, like, you know, your fixed set of LPs exactly. in, a, in a traditional yeah. LP fund. But on this one, I do think that they have, very, you know, pretty much similar similar structure of investors for every deal. Got it. So I don't, but, you know, and it was explained to me that um, this was a very complicated deal, that mm-hmm. they had to go to every ev- investor to get approval mm-hmm. um, and also to find out if they wanted to sell or, or roll or yeah, how they wanted to handle it. So, yeah, I, th- you know, that, that did complicate the process here. And I think somebody told me this took nine months to complete. Um, but what happened was that um, they got some new investors to come in. That investor group was led by a firm called Glendower Capital, mm-hmm. which is basically Deutsche Bank's old secondary team that spun out and, and started this new firm. Glendower led the group that also included uh, Grosvenor, Hamilton Lane, and uh, Blackstone Strategic Partners. And uh, total investment into this deal is about $530 million. Oh, wow. And so, so they went from no fund to having a fund one that's actually pretty pretty sizable. But I mean, look, you look at it this way. You know, we say a fund one, but really mm-hmm. that money is to buy out old investors. Yeah. There's probably a little bit of money for some add-on, mm-hmm. some add-on activity. But we're not talking about like a new fund that's going to buy new companies. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, you know, Argonne did did tell talk to me about potentially forming a blind pool fund some point in the future mm-hmm. or continuing to go deal by deal. Yeah. Uh, they, they have the basic flexibility to uh, either, you know, decide that they want to go on a, fu- they want to go on a fundraise and see how that goes mm-hmm. or just do what they've been doing for a long time. Um, they did, they do view this deal as sort of introducing them to institutional level investors, mm-hmm. which they think might be an advantage if they do decide at, one, at some point to go into blind pool investing. Um, so that's another sort of uh, side benefit of this deal mm-hmm. is to get their name out there and into the institutional quality investor Got community. Um, interesting too on this deal is that like the 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 new the fresh investment was used to completely buy out some of the companies, refinance debt on five of the companies, and then provide little slugs of growth capital for for a couple of the other companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, the investment was used for very, for different things. Mm-hmm. Some of the companies needed to refi debt because they're running up against uh, uh, covenants. Yeah. Um, and so they used it for that. You know, others just, they see pathway for more growth. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so they, they use it in that way. 
Um, what, what was interesting, just reading your story, though, was kind of how this changed the time horizon for these investments. Yeah. Um, before, when they were investing deal by deal and they were investing on behalf of, you know, basically, essentially co-investors in, in some ways, um, they weren't butting up against a 10-year fund life. And that's going to that's gonna be the case now for these investments moving forward, is they have, you know, kind of a certain time period that they would hope, I would imagine, to have instituted some change and then exit. Absolutely. Is that a fair Absolutely. read on it? Okay. Yeah. And I talked to, uh, I talked to Michael Klump, who is the CEO of, of uh, Argo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was saying, well, na- now you have a time limit, whereas before you had, you know, I, assuming you get some pressure from, oh, yeah, from totally. your original yeah. investors. but Can't there's take no, the money and run. Right. But there's no contractual deadline, yeah. as you say, like on, on a, a traditional LP fund. Now they do have a deadline. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Michael Klump told me that he was very, he was sort of excited about the discipline that, yeah. that this kind of deadline would, would instill mm-hmm. on them to sort of see their investments through and, and have, them, um, have them realize the vision that they have for each company. Um, but on the other hand, he did say that, you know, we're still long-term investors and we still take a long-term view and we're not going to make short-term decisions for these companies. So you could see potentially at some point some tension there yeah, between absolutely. you know the philosophy that they've always had and now their new capital that yeah. uh, is going to be ha- applying a little bit more pressure. Especially if that <laughs> new capital is coming from, you mentioned Blackstone, Hamilton Lane. Yeah. If that's coming from funds from Blackstone or funds like closed-end vehicles from either of those firms or from any of those firms, then they have their own LPs to, can, you know, to, to worry about absolutely. too. So they're going to want to see a return as well. So yeah. there's kind of a lot of moving parts here that, that makes a pretty interesting deal, it sounds like. Yeah, and so, um, you know, that, that idea of sort of this uh, discipline that the closed-end fund uh, sort of forces on the manager, I've heard that before from LPs who have questioned the model of the permanent capital fund that's, that's so big these yeah. days. Um, a couple LPs have told me um, that's well and good, you know, to say I want to hold a specific company for a long time because I see a lot more growth in the future. However, the bulk of companies that a GP invests in, you could, these LPs told me anyway, that discipline that's there because of the closed-end fund um, helps them to really maximize value in a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And and so they like that discipline and they, they're not, they haven't bought in yet to the idea of sort of the permanent capital fund and that, you know, every investment needs to be held for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. In some ways you could argue if you were especially cynical that a long end, long-term fund is a, just a rebranded zombie fund. (laughs) (laughs) Good marketing spin on a zombie fund. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, that's the cynical take. On the other hand, it's, it's interesting to me when I'm talking to somebody who says we love the discipline that, that comes with, you know, having to exit something in three years Mm -hmm. and you think, well, you know, what about the employees of that company who, you know, have to sort of live in this uncertainty of, you know, what's going to happen in three to three to five years <laughs> to my job or my paycheck or my health insurance? Yeah. And uh, now's <laughs> a good time to mention that we're private equity. Oh, yeah, well. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. so, um, so so just just to close this out. So that is uh, that is those are the specifics of this deal. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I also got into conversations about whether this is a this could be a trend. Are we going to start seeing... You led into my next question. Ah, okay. Sorry yeah. about that. No, it's okay. <laughs> Are we going to start 
see, are we going to start seeing this kind of activity in the independent sponsored community in general? Mm-hmm. Um, what we have seen is a lot of money flowing to the independent sponsored community. And um, Palico tracked some data around that, which showed that uh, independent sponsors who are also first timers, so sort of executives that have recently come out of shops, mm-hmm. um, Funds flowing to that community hit an estimated $32 billion last year, up from about $30 billion, so up about $2 billion from 2016. That's still a decent chunk of money for independent sponsors, quote-unquote independent sponsors. First-time independent. And and so think of this, $32 billion to first-time independent sponsors out of a total of about $70 billion overall for first-time managers. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really interesting, and, and and it shows that Limited partners are are a lot more um, open to mm. working with an independent sponsor rather than just simply going into a closed end fund. Yeah. And in fact, people have talked to me about this. This could be a good way to sort of test drive an independent sponsor. Oh, absolutely. You know, before locking up for ten years. Yeah. Let's go into a deal and see how they work the deal and have transparency around the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a good way to get to know a, an executive that you might be excited about, but you're not quite ready to go into a closed-end fund. So, you know, capital flowing into this community is on the rise. Um, it's, it's just another way that um, limited partners can allocate their money. And, of course, as we know, LPs um, are, are flush with capital and want to spend it in alternatives or at least in private equity. Mm-hmm. And so here's another channel for that. So um, with more money and as this side of the community grows, I would expect that the secondary market follows along. It maybe lags behind a bit, but, you know, the secondary market for this community also, also matures a bit, um, just like the secondary market for primary PE has grown and matured. So I do think that we're going to see more activity in, in creative deals like this, whether it becomes a major part of the secondary market. I don't think so, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Well, that's a good note to tease the Emerging Manager Connect East <laughs> there you go. conference one more time. Again, that's on July 26th at the Grand Hyatt in New York. Um, with that, we're going to take a quick break here, and then we'll come back, and Chris is going to talk to me about uh, uh, CalPERS, of course, as usual. We love CalPERS. <laughs> Hello everyone, Sam here. Just wanted to take a minute to remind you again that now is a good time to sign up for our upcoming event in Chicago at the Intercontinental Hotel. That's on June 26th and 27th. We have some really great keynotes lined up there, including Russell Carson from Welsh Carson, Anderson and Stowe, and Tony James, now the vice chairman at Blackstone Group and the author of a book about America's, uh, I guess, I guess you could call it a retirement crisis. It's it's going to be a challenge, that's for sure. So sign up for that at partnerconnectevents.com. And now back to the show. And welcome back to PE Hub Podcast. We're now going to uh, chat with Sam about a subject near and dear to our hearts, which is kelpers doing stuff, doing creative stuff. Yeah, and this is this one's actually. I mean, it is pretty creative what they're talking about doing here, and that's um, setting up. Uh, I guess you can call it a direct investment platform for private equity. It's not quite direct, but um, they they the Calpers board heard about it for the first time earlier this week. So uh, this plan came out in the public, but prior to a bo- sort of board discussion? Yeah, so in May, uh, the CalPERS board gave staff the go-ahead to start exploring the process of setting up a 
direct platform for private equity investments. Um, the rollout, when it happened in May, in a lot of ways made it sound like this was definitely going to happen, like this was a done deal. Yeah. Um, it's far from that. The board still needs to kind of clear everything away. Um, and that's going to take several months for them to do. They have to get to a point where they're comfortable with how it's going to be run, who's going to be running it, um, how it will interact with the existing private equity program, et cetera, et cetera. And just just quickly, what what is the structure again? As, as you know, sort of uh, anticipated. I guess it's not final yet. Yeah, it's it's not final yet, but the the bones are there, um, and those were kind of laid out for the board for the very first time in public um, at the meeting on Monday, the investment committee meeting on Monday. So uh, the CIO Ted Aliopoulos describes it as having four pillars. The first two are pretty familiar and. Um, basically more or less the same as what CalPERS has done for a long time, which is first one, um, investing or committing to new private equity funds, typically from established managers that they have long relationships with. And the second is an emerging managers program, which um, according to Eliopoulos at the meeting, uh, it will continue to be structured uh, through a fund of funds. Right now, GCM Grosvenor manages that emerging manager program for yeah. them. I, I think the hope, and Eliopoulos said the hope, is that CalPERS starts doing more um, kind of co-investments alongside some of those emerging managers um, and that they kind of build out the size of that emerging manager program um, over time. That's interesting. So they're putting some emphasis on, on that program. Some, but the bulk of the emphasis is on these next two parts. Okay. Um, it's two direct investment platforms. The first is going to be pursuing deals in uh, late stage healthcare, life science, um, technology companies, very VC-oriented. Um, the second is going to be kind of a Warren Buffett model type of investment vehicle where it's evergreen, it's long-term, and they're buying stakes or whole uh, controlling stakes in um, established companies, uh, established private companies, I would imagine. Um, and that's that's sort of what's what's new and what's innovative and what's being talked about here. Mm -hmm. And so almost like a perma perma hold type uh, type situation. Exactly. Yeah, like a Berkshire Hathaway, like a perma hold uh, holding company, that sort of thing. And and so um, Eliopoulos then laid out his four pillars. That was sort of the entire program. That's the yeah. That's the entire program. But that's that leaves a lot of uh, Priya Mather, the um, board president, uh, who sounds very enthusiastic about this plan you know, pointed out in her remarks at the meeting that, you know, the devil's in the details. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that we've, but you and I have been talking about in the newsroom for some time. They, uh, the way that they're talking about structuring this is by setting up a separate board that would operate at arm's length from the existing CalPERS board mm -hmm. and then having um, a separate staff of some sort, whether that's a third-party investment firm that they hire to handle this moving forward or a separate corporation, it, a lot of that kind of remains to be to be seen. And um, that's where I feel like the board is going to have some serious questions about whether this is a feasible long-term solution for them. The, the challenge always is if, if you're going to be a uh, pension that makes direct investments, uh, finding the right talent. And in order to find the right talent, you have to compensate them the way the private 
sector would compensate them. So is, is that something that they are thinking through already? That's something they're starting to talk about for sure. Um, so Ashby Monk, who um, is a guru for a lot of, he's at Stanford. Seen his name more and more these days. He's Yeah, he's kind of all over the place. He um, actually spoke to the CalPERS board on Monday. And he was, um, uh, the reason why earlier on I said that it, it's not really direct. He made it very clear in his remarks that they call it CalPERS Direct, but it's kind of direct in name only. Um, there, it, it certainly sounds like they're going to have to hire an outside firm to have a captive investment team that's uh, working on behalf of the CalPERS private equity program. Um, it's not like the Canadians where they're going to be able to go out and hire someone and compensate that person to just make direct investments for CalPERS and for this new entity. Um, it's kind of an intermediary step, basically. Why is that? Because of compensation issues? That they I can't think, bring somebody in-house? I think it's compensation. I think it's also, you know, they'd be hiring somebody who would be making direct investments. Uh, that person would ostensibly be a state employee. Is that person, you know, how is that person going to interact with the existing private equity team that's also compensated considerably less, I would imagine, than what this hypothetical direct investor would be compensated as? Um, there's all, all these these all these things are still questions and still need to be determined by the board and by staff. Um, and those are huge stumbling blocks before, kind of between this thing getting announced and this thing actually happening. Do they, uh, do they know what's going to happen with the sort of traditional private equity funds business? So you mentioned that that's kind of the first pillar. The, that's uh, one of the pillars, yeah, the four pillars, pillars that, yeah. So, so, like, who will lead it? They haven't hired a, a head of PE yet. They haven't, the, hired the a, they haven't hired a head of PE. They haven't hired someone. Uh, I mean, this is, they're still early in the process of finding a replacement for Ted Eliopoulos, who's going to be leaving at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're very clearly, they, they've made it very clear that they're going to continue invest in, investing and committing to new private equity funds, but how that will interact with this new entity um, or whether it will continue to be overseen by the CalPERS board, I guess, is, is a little up in the air. And yeah, I wasn't able to get real clarity on that, I guess. That's the other question because, um, you know, what was that a year ago when a lot of stories came out that said they, they, they might outsource the, the sort of private equity program? to a third party, maybe a BlackRock or maybe somebody else. Yeah, maybe is Goldman. That, is that it's, still up in the air? It's Well, I, I think that's kind of part of this. All of these things are very fluid Wow. still. Um, <laughs> what they've come up with is here are the four things that we want to do. Mm -hmm. They haven't figured out how they can get to that point where they can actually do them yet. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if CalPERS were run as a dictatorship and – one person could decide how they would do this. They, they could do it very clearly. But, you know, there's a there's a board of administration that includes elected officials, state elected officials, folks who are elected by the beneficiaries, and, um, you know, appointees as well. And they all have their own constituencies that they have to advocate on behalf of. Um, and they have very different appetites for um, transparency and um, even private equity in general. So getting all of those folks on board with a with one plan is going to be pretty challenging. And uh, I think that's kind of where they're at right now, is just that at the very early stages of getting all those people on board. Is there a time frame for, like, implementation of this? I think originally they said their hope was to have it, you know, kind of ready to go by the end of the year or early 2019. Um, 
But, you know, a lot can happen between uh, in six months, especially given the fact that so many important personnel uh, or so many important people to the CalPERS private equity program aren't going to be there Mm -hmm. or aren't there yet. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be uh, tricky. I I feel like I'm not answering your question squarely here, but that's just because there's not really square answers for a lot of this yet. Yeah. And um, also, I, I mean, like, why? You know, across the board, uh, across these four various areas that they want to deal with, why? You know, wh- why are they sort of considering outsourcing the private or equity program? Like, why do they want to build this, you know, quote unquote, direct investment program? They've given a bunch of different answers to this. <laughs> um, the first, I think, has to do with scale. Um, in order for them to meet their target allocations, well, first of all, they have about 8% of their their entire investment portfolio in private equity presently. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a 7%, it's, I, think, I think it's 7%, assumed rate of return that they have to hit over the next decade. In his opening comments at the meeting on Monday, uh, Heliopolis said that the only asset class that they expect to clear that 7% is private equity. So they want private equity. Private equity is very central to their investment strategy moving forward. And in order to do that at scale... Eliopoulos seems to think that the only way to do that is to set up a direct investment program where they can allocate $10, million, or $10 billion, $13 billion a year mm-hmm. to new private equity investments. Um, and they're not doing that currently. Now they're doing around, like I think, like 4 to $6 billion a year. Okay. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason is control. Clearly, they've had a lot of issues with their private equity program over, over the years, going back to you know the pay-to-play scandals of... 2008, 2009, 2010, um, major large commitments, fund commitments to very large and expensive funds managed by some of their blue chip managers that haven't performed as well. Um, They've kind of tried a bunch of different things and never really gone all all in on any of them. Uh, The 30 managers thing that happened a couple of years ago. So I think this is a way to kind of like reel all that in and kind of reset with something new. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big part of it. And then uh, another huge component of it, too, is fees. Um, there's been some kind of mixed messaging around whether or not this would actually save CalPERS money. Um, I, you know, it's impossible to say whether it would or not because they haven't actually hired anyone to replace uh, the current model. And if they did hire someone to replace the, the current model, it would depend on what they're getting paid. And also, if they're you know making new fund investments or investing alongside managers who charge fees, what those fees are. So, it, it's tough to say whether it will save them money. Um, I think a big part of it is just kind of control. the The notion that if they if they have this infrastructure in place, these four pillars in place, they'll have greater control over how their money is being invested, what types of companies they're investing in, and um, what their long term outlook looks like. Mm-hmm. And cer- certainly this model, and, and again, we, we don't know what CalPERS going to look like it's, you know, once they get to a final uh, decision, but certainly this model of almost like half-and-half half funds and directs has worked for some of the Canadian pensions. Exactly, um, it, and it has worked, but again, this, w- this is very different and distinct from what the Canadians are doing. So there's going to be, I think it, a lot of people are going to make the comparison that this is a CalPERS trying a Canadian model. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be very di- different ultimately. Some hybrid. Yeah, some hybrid with stuff that works for the Canadian, stuff that works for other U.S. institutions, 
kind of throwing all that together and going from there. Would be interesting to see if, you know, CalPERS does get this done in a few years if some other big uh, pensions follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's a big part of it too is that they don't view themselves as, and this came up in the meeting on Monday, they don't view themselves as market leaders in private equity. And they, have, they believe that they have the size and scale to be market leaders in private equity. And this is a way to do this. This is a pathway forward to do this. So um, that's interesting. Yeah, so certainly they were once the, mar- the, the market leader in private equity for LP side. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely that's true. But I would definitely agree whoever said that, that, that they have fallen off uh, in recent years and uh, you know, definitely not the market leader anymore. Yeah. And, that's, and I don't think that they would disagree with that. Um, that said, I, they, their commitments represent something like one or two percent of every <laughs> private equity commitment made in a given year. Like they're a huge, they're a huge entity, and they're an important part of the private equity universe. So figuring out what they're going to do and what they're going and how they're going to do this will um, definitely be something that a lot of other institutions are watching. Cool. All right. Well, with that, unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, again, this is Sam Sutton. And Chris Wachowski. And uh, definitely check out our stuff at pehub.com and uh, sign up for events at partnerconnectevents.com. See you later.